In the Gospel of John's account on Easter morning, the two disciples were at the tomb, the beloved disciple and Peter. In their discovery of an empty tomb and neatly folded grave clothes, they come to believe that Jesus' resurrection is true. Mary Magdalene was also present on that first Easter morning, but she cannot move from fear into belief until she sees the risen Christ. But upon seeing him, she is the first to proclaim, I have seen the risen Lord, and takes this message back to Jesus' disciples. And although it's no longer Easter morning, this is the continuation of the resurrection reality unfolding. Listen now for God's word as I read from the 20th chapter of John. When it was evening on that day, the first day of the week, and the doors of the house where the disciples had met were locked for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. After he said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples rejoiced when they saw Jesus, the Lord. And Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, so I send you. When he said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you retain the sins of any, they are retained. But Thomas, who was called the twin, one of the twelve, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Until I see the mark of the nails in his hands, and put my finger in the mark of the nails, and my hand in his side, I will not believe. A week later, his disciples were again in the house, and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were shut, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here and see my hands. Reach out your hand and put it in my side. Do not doubt, but believe. Thomas answered him, My Lord and my God. And Jesus said to him, have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not yet seen and have yet come to believe. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may come to believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and through believing you may have life in his name. Amen. Please pray with me. Dear God, we ask that you settle us into this time and place to be open to your spirit within and surrounding us so that we may receive your word of good news. Calm our fears, confront our doubts, and breathe into us the confidence of the reality of the risen Christ for us. We pray this in his name. Amen. Candace Bergen was somewhat of a hero for me that I came to know through her character and the namesake of the show, Murphy Brown. You may remember it, it aired starting in the late 80s, continuing through the late 90s. In this, she was brave, creative, honest, self-aware, and as People Magazine describes, she had a very tart tongue. She was absolutely willing to speak the truth. Now, I'll confess I don't know if I can separate my perception of the person of Candace Brown from the fictional character of Murphy Brown, but the reviews and contents of her latest memoir lead me to think that they have much in common. Her new memoir is entitled A Fine Romance, and this recounts her life since her first husband's death, 
her new romance, and what life is like in her maturing years. It indicts our common culture's presumption that Hollywood stars as Bergen must shamelessly proclaim. It indicts our common culture's presumption about Hollywood stars as Bergen shamelessly proclaims that she is happy, she is in love, and she has no interest in cosmetic surgery. Now, how can this be? It's prevalent in Hollywood. If it's not cosmetic surgery, then in its images of stars or any cover model that's so photoshopped to perfection that we can no longer see or accept beauty as it's revealed naturally. And Candace Bergen was and is and will always be beautiful by any, any human measure. On top of shamelessly living beyond the narrow conceptions of acceptability with wrinkles, she also claims to be 30 pounds overweight and happy. Imagine that, she's happy. Common culture bombards us with so many images to persuade us that true happiness depends upon being thin and possessing a perfect complexion, but we know images can deceive us and it's really liberating to think of happiness amidst plumpness and wrinkles and thanks be to God. Remaining in the world of entertainment, recently the singer Pharrell Williams' song, Blurred Lines, was determined by a jury to have been copied from the late Marvin Gaye's 1970s song, Gotta Give It Up. It resulted in a multi-million dollar settlement. So when we hear music, we can only wonder, can we trust our ears, our perception of the rhythm and the way it moves us? Is this really originality or did someone copy this? What really can we trust and how much should we be suspicious of what we hear? This week, news reports pounced on the findings by Columbia University's Graduate School of Journalism from its investigation of Rolling Stone magazine, in which it was revealed that Rolling Stone failed to exercise even the most basic standards of reporting integrity when it published an article that was a searing account of a rape of a young woman at a fraternity at the University of Virginia campus. It was published without fact-checking of the young woman's story at any level. From the reporter through all of the editors, they ignored basic journalistic responsibilities, and an article was published that was false and damaging on so many levels. The Columbia University report claims the reporter was caught up in her own preconceptions and failed to question and probe and verify, and choosing instead to find an avenue to a sensational story that would appeal to the market. There were tragic consequences of this article, both in that the false testimony of this young woman may cloud suspicion over any other victim of sexual assault who may be suspected of fabricating events but really is needing desperate care and needs protection. And deceiving readers of the truth compromises the integrity not only of Rolling Stone but allows doubt to fester when other tragic but potentially true stories are reported. I will not bother to continue to build my case of false realities by those that we encounter from corporate misdeeds or superstars in sports who dope or those uncovered self-centered behaviors of public servants. We're well advised to carry a healthy sense of disbelief today of what we see, what we hear, and what we're told. Without this, we might form our perceptions of beauty around impossible illusions, trust in fabricated lies to accuse others of wrong, or align our lives with unsound principles, or worse yet, just become so jaded we ignore what is really real. Skepticism and doubt has been valued through the ages. 
It's only the Gospel of John that gives us the disciple Thomas and gives us Thomas with a voice to ask the questions that we want to ask of Jesus at the pivotal moments in Jesus' journey from the cross and beyond. Thomas is called the twin perhaps because he is our twin, representing the incredulous non-believer in all of us that resists the easy answer to questions of faith and the man who always wants more proof. During their final nights together and before his impending death, Jesus attempts to calm the disciples' fear by telling them that they know where he is going and that they know the way, implying all of this is the way to God. But Thomas is the one that blurts out, we don't know where you're going, so how can we know the way? And he names what so many of them must have thought and that what we might think. Thomas had staked his life on following this man and now was wondering, Will he be left in the lurch without a future and without faith in anything? In the days following the crucifixion and resurrection, while the disciples were huddled in an upper room, locked away behind securely closed doors, Thomas had ventured out one day and missed Jesus' appearance. And although the others came to believe through witness and testimony, Thomas cannot wrap his mind around this new reality. Jesus was raised as Christ. Death and the tomb did not contain him. Clearly stating what will appeal to his reason, Thomas says, I need to see the wounds, I need to touch the nail imprints, and I need to be in his presence. And then and only then will I believe that the resurrection and Jesus' entire ministry is true. Now this text appears traditionally in the second Sunday of Easter, and we are in the season of Easter for many weeks because this is a time in which we need to question and think about the resurrection. On the second Sunday of Easter, we find that the lilies have faded and the chocolate bunnies are gone. And this is when we can slip back into the routine of life and begin to dismiss the resurrection if we ever believed it in the first place. Or we might try to smooth it into reason and metaphors and tuck it away in something that we might pull out later on. But it's author and poet John Updike. He was raised as a Lutheran, and this is evident in the deep mark that his faith left in his writings and in his beliefs. In an Easter poem, Updike seems to write, if you're going to believe, then believe. Stop trying to soften the edges of Christian faith or make it something acceptable. To modernize the resurrection by making it a metaphor or a parable or the disciple's dream or a psychological experience, you lose something essential and not just of the story, but of the very promise of God to remake everything as real and tangible and alive as God made it in the first place. Let me offer just a few of those seven stanzas. Let us not mock God with metaphor, analogy, sidestepping transcendence, making of the event a parable, a sign painted in faded credulity of early ages. Let us walk through the door. The stone is rolled back, not paper mache, not a stone in a story, but the vast rock of materiality that in the slow grinding of time will eclipse for each of us the wide light of day. Just as Jesus came to earth and the man, just as God came to earth and the man we know as Jesus to pursue a relationship with humankind on terms we could comprehend to reveal a love so strong that death will never be final. Jesus, too, came through locked doors and through the cloud of doubt to reach the skeptic Thomas. 
And when doubt crept in, Jesus came to Thomas, healing the wounds of a broken heart and demonstrating God's reality of love. For each person, body, mind, and soul can and does exist amidst all of the clutter of the world that would seek to deny or belittle it. Theologian David Luce writes, Jesus comes and takes Thomas's mocking words and turns them back on him, not to humiliate or scold him, but simply to confront him with the possibility that his reality was too small. His vision of what is possible is too limited. And when Jesus calls him to faith, he's actually inviting him to enter into a whole new world. Even though we may think we know what happened, the text does not tell us ever that Thomas touched Jesus. The only thing that we know from the writer is that Thomas was overcome by a belief beyond what our senses can relate. And Thomas was the first in the gospel to announce the connection between Jesus and God when he proclaims, my Lord and my God. The reality of Christ comes to us beyond our senses of sight and smell and touch and even reason. Jesus' reality was demonstrated by his love for the outsider and the sinner. A reality of abundant food and healing when only a false sense of scarcity had reigned. And a promise to never abandon us when we feel estranged. Jesus brought a new reality that the powers in control are not in control. God will always have the final word and God's word is always love. This Thursday marked two significant anniversaries. And for those of you that attended Bill Evertsburg's class on the sesquicentennial of the Civil War, you know much about the end of the Civil War with Robert E. Lee's surrender at Appomattox marked this past Thursday. On that day, the belief that it was acceptable to keep humans in bondage through slavery was surrendered to the ideal that all men are created equal. No longer would oppression based on skin color or race be tolerated in these United States, or so we thought. And yet 150 years later, we are still challenged to live into that ideal, founded on the reality that Christ brought to life. But yet we had to witness the killing of yet another unarmed African American. And this time it wasn't through testimony, but a video for us to watch in horror with our own eyes as we saw a police officer shooting Walter Scott. We cannot escape the harsh, deadly reality of continuing to tolerate racial prejudice that continues to live in our country. Thursday also marked the death of Lutheran pastor and theologian and until World War II, a staunch pacifist. And yes, I'm describing Dietrich Bonhoeffer. He was imprisoned by the Nazi regime for conspiring to assassinate Hitler, and that was the only way he saw the end to World War II. Theologian Reggie Williams, who is the author of the book entitled Bonhoeffer's Black Jesus, wrote, I quote, on this date 70 years ago in the morning, Dietrich Bonhoeffer was taken from his prison at the Flossenburg concentration camp and hanged to death. As a brilliant, wealthy Aryan man, he was killed by the forces that were attempting to construct a society specifically for him. But rather than be at home in what was billed as the ideal community, he suffered like the outcasts, choosing to suffer the consequences for non-cooperation with evil. Bonhoeffer believed and worked to create the new reality made known through Christ's resurrection 
and he died for not accepting that the illusions created by those in control, even though he would have purportedly benefited from all of what they promised. Bonhoeffer had the clarity of sight and the abiding trust in the gospel. Might we too be claimed by such a belief? The disciple of Thomas has endured throughout the ages and known as the doubter, standing in for each of us who questions if the resurrection and Jesus' ministry can be trusted. But Thomas is the role model for doubt to be healed by faith. He is the one who now challenges us to take our doubt, but not in the gospel, but to take our doubt and to question the certainty that the world tries to feed us, that the status quo is all we could ever expect. We can take our doubt into the world and question if the photoshopped images of culture, and instead we can see with fresh eyes the beauty in others and ourselves. We can take our doubt into the world and probe the stories of those who seek to convict others through lies. And we can take our doubt into the world and instead of feeling fear when we look in the face of a stranger or seeing someone who needs to be subdued or avoided, we instead can see the face of God in the other person. Doubt will be the seed to unmask the facade in the world and to find the true reality that God created. So it is in this quiet place we come to ask for healing, for turning disbelief into belief, and to being claimed by God. Amen. <laughs>